VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, April the 6th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you. Of course we are. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Now you know where I'm starting. Vegas, baby. At the Men's World Curling Championships, Team Guju remain undefeated 6-0. and but they're going to probably have to buck the trend of falling behind so early and having to roar back for a victory. So they beat the Germans 11-7, but they were down 5-1 after three. So the Canada stole a point in the first end, and then the uh, Germans got three in the second, then stole a deuce, uh, and a deuce in the third, and all of a sudden we're down 5-1, but we roar all the way back. The team is ruthless, and they're relentless. But they can't keep that up because at some point you run out of luck when the and the opportunity to roar back like they did last night. A couple of games today, they play three-time defending champion Nicholas uh, Edin of Sweden, and then they play the Finns later on this evening. But looking good. 6-0, it's all accounts. All right, uh, let's see here. Quickie in history. 126 years ago, the first Olympic Games of the modern era opened in Athens. That's 1,500 years after the original Games were banned by the Roman Emperor. So because ancient Greece was the ho- birthplace of the Olympics, Athens was chosen as the place to host the first modern games. So the games of the first Olympiad were uh, regarded as a great success. The largest attendance for any sporting event up to that date. The highlights for the Greeks, and you know what the marathon means. It's the, it's the ultimate uh, sporting event inside the Olympics, or so says the, the tradition and the history. The Greeks won it. So the, a guy named Spiridon Louis, or Louis, he was a soldier. He was encouraged to try out for the Olympics by his former commanding officer. Following his victory, he was an absolute national hero. After that, became a police officer and a farmer. So 126 years ago, the games of the first Olympiad were held. I want to say good luck, and apparently it's been a great success so far. Uh, participants in the Royal Newfoundland Regiment Memorial High School Hockey Tournament. It's been played out of Town of Paradise on their Double A's Complex. Massive event. So good luck to the players and the coaches and the staff, and congratulations to those who organized the event. I did see they were lucky enough to get Grade 7 play-by-play with Seth Hyde to come in and call some of the games. If you haven't heard young Seth Hyde call a hockey game, you are missing out. There's lots of ways to do it. Like when he does games from the DF Barnes Arena, doing some Celtics hockey and a AAA midget and what have you, we stream it on our Facebook page. So one of these days, I'll you know give an update here off the top of the program when you can tune in and hear Seth Hyde. He's terrific, and he has a bright future ahead of him for sure. Anyway, good stuff. Also, good luck to the participants today at the Genesis Center's 25th Pitch and Pick. So these were local startups have an opportunity to uh, pitch their idea in front of a bunch of tech, uh, creden- tech community and academia and public and other public funding agencies. It's being held at Verifin today. So it's happened sometime this afternoon. And you never know. The next big idea might be part of this batch of pitch and picks that happens this afternoon. Good luck to all. We had a good conversation with Dan Brake, who's the chair of the board of TechNL, just yesterday here on this program. Okay. So let's talk about access to information. And there's been a trampling on our access to information in successive governments. Going back to what was the, I think, the undoing of the PC government was the introduction of Bill 29. And that has been a problem for all of us, right? 
they did indeed, under public pressure, reverse their want to protect the government from frivolous and vexatious applications for information. I really do think it was the Tories' undoing. But anyway, so they then indeed did revamp the access to information legislation. It was given high marks from privacy commissioners coast to coast to coast. But here we are now, in a, uh, again, in a place where access is becoming harder and harder to get. Information is power. The Supreme Court last week here in this province made a ruling that allowed the government to just assert the fact that there was information protected by solicitor-client privilege and we weren't able to compel them to release it. The Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey, in what they call a blistering rebuke, says, if this ruling stands, there will be no protection against spurious denials of access or overbroad claims of privilege. In Alberta, a case waited its way all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, and in that ruling, it was really quite clear, the Supreme Court said it must be clear and unambiguous legislative intent to set aside any solicitor-client privilege. So it's becoming harder and harder. It's about time we have an update and a conversation with Michael Harvey. Even though I know he was on with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy this morning on the VOC Morning Show, maybe in the days to come, we'll see if we can get him on. But this is not good enough, right? And then furthermore, with transparency or the lack thereof. So... The Rothschild report is in hand. Minister Cody says it contains some commercial sensitivities, and consequently those sections will not be released. She goes on also to say, and unable to commit to releasing any other information that is not commercially sensitive. If this is going to be big, massive decisions made by government-managed assets, then we deserve to know. Even if other members of the House of Assembly are given a technical briefing, even if we are just simply allowed to see what the recommendations are from Rothschild and Co., given the fact that we all chipped in on the $5 million American money to pay them for this report. I don't even know how they have the... I don't even know how they have the, uh, the courage to stand in front of the cameras and the microphones to deny us a look at this. Now... We can't and don't expect them to release any information that will jeopardize the bidding process, maybe uh, uh, create a fire sale opportunity for those out there who look to be involved in privatizing some of these, these operations and or buying them in full. I don't know what the values are. Well, I don't expect them to release assessed values, but I certainly uh, anticipate that they maybe will have a change of heart and do more to inform us as to what exactly is in there. You know, the Green Report was released in full, and apparently the Green Report has influenced what we'll hear in tomorrow's budget. But let's have a look. You know, the hypocrisy, when you say that in an effort to be transparent, that the uh, legislative changes to the Memorial University Act and the Auditor General Act has allowed De uh, Denise Hanrahan and her team to have a full and comprehensive review of the operational spending at Memorial University because so much in the way of government dollars subsidizes the university. Okay. If that's the role of the government and the key feature of accountability, then please apply it to other pieces of business, including that Rothschild report, at least portions of it. Come on. Anyway, we want to talk about that kind of stuff. We can do it. Now, I have to say, things happen fast and furious, and there's no coincidences in politics. So we see that Noya has rebranded as Energy NL. And now the CNLOPB is also going to re re be rebranded. And that's to accommodate more potential for offshore renewable energy, wind and hydrogen. It's good. And we should be doing exactly that. So there's some 100 people work at the CNLOPB. They have an operating budget of some $22 million. After the legislative changes are made, the regulator will be known as the Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador Offshore Energy Board. All right. That all makes sense. Because you have to be all-encompassing because we have lots of opportunity for alternative forms of energy. I get it. At the exact same time, 
We know that back in 2007, two notorious pieces of legislation, Bill, C, uh, Bill 60, which took the PUB out of setting prices associated with Muskrat Falls, and then Bill 61, the inability for other operators to, say, for instance, develop wind and the potential to sell it back to the grid. You know, there's only minimal net metering in this province. But here we go. Bill 61 has been amended to allow for more and more of this type of energy to be generated. I have to admit, I'm a little bit confused. Okay, so you're going to have a private operator be able to apply for and maybe get approval for establishing a wind farm. I don't know if that includes onshore and offshore. And it can be for self-generation, so they take care of their own power needs on-site for whatever kind of operation they have. And the potential to export. Export to who? I really am a little bit confused on this one. So back into, but before we had the Maritime Island Link, or pardon me, the Maritime Link, we had the inability to generate as much wind power as people think we could and should have because with an isolated grid, mechanical engineers, engineers in the field said it was not really doable. We could handle about 10%. But now that we're connected, we can do a lot more. But who's the export market? If they're not selling it back to the grid, then how are they getting it out of here? Is it big offshore wind installations with markets elsewhere? I don't know. The other complicating factor for the ratepayers of the province is because the costs of Muskrat Falls are fixed. It's just like they're building uh, gadgets or doodads. No matter what, we owe a set amount to the lenders. So with fewer people consuming the power, we're going to end up paying more. It's sort of counterintuitive, but that's the way it works. So if we have big consumers of power on land who are getting some generation from another source beyond hydro and Muskrat Falls, we will indeed pay more, which is maddening. So what's actually going on behind the scenes here that has led to this? I know that Minister Parsons was quite clear that he was bullish on wind, and yes, the potential for clean hydrogen and the export market that we can indeed find in Europe, but that, that doesn't really mean any boon to the province because if it's not an Alcor operation, which of course is our crown corporation, then how does this even work? I'm not really sure. Then you factor in all of these moves for rebrand and the delay in CNLOPB land sales and the 40 additional days requested or demanded or taken by Minister Gibo for final approval of Beta Nord. You know, a couple of things. Generally speaking, in years past, the provincial budget was brought down after the federal budget, so we had some understanding what type of federal government supports could be incorporated in our budget. But they're both on the same day. Now, the Premier was taking a task for going to Ottawa to hear from the Ukrainian president addressing the House of Commons, President Zelensky. And, of course, there must have been something else on the agenda. So, obviously, the province must know what's coming as it pertains to supports for the provinces, specifically Newfoundland and Labrador, because of the obvious. So, you know, maybe I'm just rolling around in bed too much thinking about these things, but does that mean that there's going to be some indication, given the fact that things move right quite quickly, fast and furious, all the rebrands, amending the legislations, alternative forms of energy, is that good news or bad news for Beta Nord? Now, there's many people out there who think the project shouldn't be approved. I get it. But there's an awful lot of folks who think it's mandatory on the, on the financial or the economic side. So does that mean we'll hear an announcement today, maybe? I haven't seen anything, any indication that there be some sort of announcement coming from Minister Gibo or Minister Wilkinson in conjunction with Minister Parsons or Premier Fury. But that announcement's coming at least by the 13th of this month. And it's also important to note that, you know, we've seen a skyrocket in the price of oil. 
But that does not mean we're going to see a huge bump for oil revenues to be incorporated in this year's budget because production numbers are way down. They simply are. And that's unfortunate because the the value of the price of the barrel is really quite something. And numbers for context from the last fall fiscal update, we were running a $595 million deficit. The net debt was $16.7 billion. We had to borrow some $1.7 billion. Some of those lower numbers were because there was a, a higher-than-expected corporate income tax, more mining and mineral tax revenues, more sales tax. So we'll see how that compares or contrasts to the numbers we'll get tomorrow when the budget is presented. Um, and we're going to be covering that live, 2 o'clock, when the minister stands in the House of Assembly, myself, Linda Swain, and it might be more to the team. Maybe Richard Duggan is going to join us as well. We'll bring you the details as we understand them. Okay. So we get some $27 million out of the federal government's $2 billion to deal with surgical backlogs. How that's going to be spent, I have no idea. We know that even just between St. Clair's and the Health Sciences Center, there were some 6,000 surgeries that had been delayed. People and their families anxiously waiting, getting the procedure done. And an elective surgery doesn't mean that you just elected to have one. It's simply about selecting a date. Now we're told, given some of the conversation between the Registered Nurses Union and the province, that there's the potential for some innovative solutions to deal with the overworked and stressed out registered nurses in the province. And there's lots of job vacancies and people threatening to, to quit and move on to something else or to go on the casual list. What it might mean, we're told, is that in an effort to get the nurses their deserved time off, we may see additional surgical delays this summer, maybe have to close some operating theaters because we wouldn't have the staff. Boy, oh boy. That's, that's not the news that people wanted to hear, for sure, but that's the real potential that's coming this summer, so we're told, based on the conversation with the nursing think tank that simply has to deal with the overworked uh, registered nurses and other healthcare practitioners here in this province. Okay, quick one before we get to the calls. How are we doing out there, David? All right. So when the federal government put forward hundreds of millions of dollars to try to prop up some local small media, not us. It was a good idea to save those media organizations, but it was a bad idea when we were going down that dastardly road of the rally cry of something that you don't agree with and you simply call it fake news. And that has had devastating impact. The government table legislation yesterday, that makes much more sense. It's to force the digital giants to compensate news publishers for use of their content, notably Google and Facebook or Meta or Meta, whatever it is. I don't use the whole crackbook very much. Here's the downside for local media. Since 2008, there's been 450 news outlets in Canada that have closed their jobs. At least one-third of Canadian journalist jobs have disappeared over that time period. That has had a massive impact on the journalism media landscape. And just because you don't agree with it doesn't make it fake. And we've really got to get back to brass tacks on that front. But here's the thing. Google and Facebook alone have a combined 80% share of all the online ad revenue in this country. They take in about $10 billion. That has pummeled smaller outlets. So before the federal government put federal tax dollars on the table, as they did, which I think was a philosophical mistake, might have been a pragmatic move, they should have done this first. Because these companies are massive and they are using content generated by others that are unable to get any recovery of cost on their end, because 80% of the online ad revenue goes to those two companies alone. So that's probably a really smart move uh, on behalf of the federal liberals in that proposed legislation, but that should have been what they did first, in my personal opinion. 
Uh, one quick check in with David. How are we doing out there? Let's get the show rolling here today. There's just an endless list of things that we can talk about and we should talk about. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's get a tune going. Back in 1974, number three on the album charts was the great Joni Mitchell with her record, Court and Spark. Here's one of the tracks off it. This is Free Man in Paris. When we come back, let's talk. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Christy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. First time caller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. What's on your mind? So, it's a bit of a long story. I'm going to try to make it as short as possible. Basically, um, I had a child in October of 2020, and I was dealing with a lot of postpartum issues and depression and stuff like that, and just low energy. And my regular doctor left the province, so I made a uh, appointment with a walk-in clinic, so I've never met this doctor before. We had about a five-minute phone conversation. I was telling him, like, I was feeling tired and sad and all the postpartum stuff, and he was asking, like, if my father was asleep watching movies and stuff like that, and I was like, saying yes, but, I mean... Who don't sometimes or like fall asleep in the passenger seat of a car on the long drive. And um, basically, I just wanted like my iron checked or some advice or maybe some like meds for depression. But he, uh, I guess, wrote a letter to the DMV to have my license taken. Now, I've tried lawyers, I've tried other doctors, I've tried my MHA, and <laughs> it seems the only way I can get it back is to see a psychiatrist. Whereas um, that's a three-year wait to see one. I've tried to see private ones, but they won't see me because I'm not in their area. And um, it was narcolepsy he suggested I had, but I can't understand why I need to see a psychiatrist because it should be like a neurological issue. Yeah, so there is no process for a formal appeal? They simply have to get a medical clearance? I did. I went through all that, and they told me... um, that I would have to have, because of the way he put it in, I would have to have a psychiatrist to sign up. Hmm. Boy, oh boy. And, you know, without the ability to have a license to get yourself where you need to be, it becomes a very complicated world. What part of the province do you live in, if you don't mind me asking? I'm in Clarenville, so there's no, like, buses. There's cabs, but yeah. there's no, like, real public transit. So have you tried to get on a waiting list for a psychiatrist? Because I know the wait times are extraordinary. Yeah, I am on the wait list, and I call once a week. I probably got a mile drove nuts. Um, <laughs> but they're still telling me it's a three-year wait, and I've been on it for over a year now. Have you gone back to the original doctor to ask if they say narcolepsy and you make the mention of a, a neurologist? Have you gone back to see if you can get a referral to a neurologist? I did. I went back to him, and I just kind of explained to him, like, I don't have narcolepsy. Like, I work full-time. Anyone could tell you that. Um, and he just kind of said, brushed it off, and was like, well, I made the report. It's not my job to fix it. And that was his exact words. It's not my job. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, so yeah. what are you doing to accommodate? Uh, are you using the taxis? Because that becomes pretty expensive pretty quickly. It do, yeah. And luckily my um, boyfriend is off work right now, and he's taking care of the baby. So he's able to drive me back and forth for the most part. But when he can't, yeah, I'm having use cabs and stuff. So it adds up. And uh, a personal question, then feel free not to answer. So you, uh, after the birth of your child, and congratulations, you felt unwell, maybe some postpartum. How are you feeling today? Um, okay, for the most part. Like, I'm back to work now, so that helps. So I'm definitely still struggling with it. I'm still on medication and stuff. 
but uh, not able to go to my kids' play dates and like appointments and stuff whenever I need to. It's definitely not helping. <laughs> well, I hope you get some solutions as quick as possible. Uh, how long had you had your license prior to having it suspended? Well, it expired when I was pregnant. I let it expire because I wasn't driving. I was too nervous to drive by myself because it was high risk. So I went after I had the baby and paid the money to have it renewed. And then I think it was like three days later, I had an appointment with that doctor and he took up. So pretty much three days. But before that, I've been driving since I was like 16. Well, I wish I had somewhere to direct you to get some swift solutions to your problem. I don't at this moment in time. If someone can chime in my ear and uh, give me some helpful information for you, I'll be happy to pass it along. But I wish you well uh, with your own health and with your family and with your license. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Take care, Christy. You too. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Oh, boy. That's a tough one. Uh, let's see. Line number two. David, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Patty. How you doing? Doing okay today. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Um, I just wanted to call and uh, talk about the uh, the sugar beverage tax that the uh, government is implementing in September. Right. Uh, we're a uh, I'm an independent uh, distributor and uh, family-owned business. We've been around for 75 years. We uh, distribute beverages and tobacco and different things that uh, are regulated by the government. And uh, I just want to call on the government to to let to get them to contact us distributors that are affected by this because they say that they've consulted with with people and but i haven't had heard it from anybody from government on where we're supposed to go with this right i hear the beverage association advertising on this station uh, i'm a little bit confused by some of the things they say like a secret tax i don't know how secret it is they've told us exactly what it's going to be 20 cents per liter uh and there's going to be options out there they also go out to talk about jobs and i guess that would refer to your wholesale business and or bottling plants what have you but do you think consumption is actually going to go down because there's a bunch of exemptions right diet beverages so if you're if you like a drop of pepsi maybe you like a drop of diet pepsi if that's your bag so i don't really know how much consumption will be dealt with on this front they think if i remember correctly they think they're going to bring in some nine million dollars i think annually on this tax but with all the exemptions that are there fruit juices veggie juices i can't remember what else is there but i know that diet beverages are exempt so do you think that people will legitimately all of a sudden quit drinking pop because they have a 20 cent tax on full bore pepsi versus diet pepsi no, they won't. That's the thing is it's been proven and there's been places in the state that have tried to implement this and they've had to uh, get rid of it because it, it really didn't do anything and it just created chaos for the people that were trying to uh, collect it, right? And that's the point that I'm trying to get at it to, is the collection point of it. Of they, they think that it's just a, you flip a switch and we can collect that tax easily and report it and give it back to them right right it's not as easy as that like we have we have systems that like our computer systems need to be create programs and those programs cost thousands and thousands of dollars to get made and then we have to figure out how we're going to collect from for each one like uh uh like like you say a coke or a diet coke or a pepsi or diet pepsi and then a juice and then and different things like that and 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 also we don't buy from just one supplier. So when we have to remit it, we have to go through all of our invoices. So we might buy from 10 different suppliers, beverages, and, you know, each one is a different is a different type of beverage, right? And it gets kind of, uh, gets kind of uh, 
uh, chaotic trying to collect it and figure out where you. So we got to have a person dedicated to that. And but we, there's no return for us. The government doesn't pay us to do it. They're telling us that we have to do it. And I cannot, like our business cannot re- recoup that because we're as a distributor for say uh, a beverage company. We just make a commission. So there's no there's no way for us to recoup that cost. No, that's right, because no additional revenue. There's an upfront cost to be able to collect. I completely understand that point, and that's absolutely real for everybody, from the bottling plant through your business right to the corner store. So this is an absolute issue for business. You know, I remember the minister said it's not intended to impact business, but it's going to have an obvious impact on business. It's a huge impact on business. And and I tell you, and, and another thing, too, with government, like we've been collecting tobacco tax for years for the government at no charge. And if we miss one invoice, the government charges us a penalty and charges us interest. So if that, if we get out of it and that invoice was three years ago, they charge us interest on that from the time that, that it happened, like three years ago. So those are so things like that. And, and I don't understand why they just think that it's going to be easy. And, and, and another thing is, they're talking about revenue of nine million dollars. What about the the fifty million dollars that they lost last year in in lost tobacco sales because of contraband? Right, like, why don't they focus on that? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's as much a law enforcement issue as it is government policy. Um, yes. So, I mean, a fair point. There's lots of places where there's people and products falling through the cracks and or coming in illegally and sold on the black market, quote-unquote. So, fair ball. And, but even in the $9 million, I know it's supported by a bunch of uh, organizations like the Canadian Cancer Society, I believe. And, you know, how they're even going to spend the $9 million to encourage healthy choices, I have no earthly idea how that's going to work either. The one area where tax on sugary products, drinks in particular, has been effective is when they tax the, the, the point of the origin. So they went after the manufacturers, and they they encouraged them to lower their sugar content before they taxed them additional monies. So that's how you have healthier products for people because, you know, and it goes back to the argument about the price of milk. People aren't buying milk because it's too expensive. Then they're buying pop instead because it's much less expensive. No, they're buying pop because they like it. And same thing here. There's going to be, you know, Pepsi drinkers or ginger ale drinkers that are going to go to the diet brand to avoid the 20 cents a liter tax. So I'm really not quite sure this one hits the target and absolutely misses it in full when we talk about the impact financially on your business. Yeah, exactly. David, anything else you'd like to say about it this morning? Uh, No, I think that's about it. Appreciate you taking the call. I appreciate you making time. Okay, thank you. Take care. Good luck. Bye bye. Yeah, that uh, tax is set to come into effect on the 1st of September 2022. So it's fine to say that it's not intended to have an impact on business because they will have to rejig their systems to be able to collect this tax on government's behalf. Does that mean, like uh, David said, he's collecting the tobacco tax and he does it for nothing? Does that mean that government is going to have to all of a sudden acknowledge this will have a price tag for business, distributors, and others? that is going to have to be covered by someone because they're not, they're not going to see any additional revenue. That tax doesn't go in their pocket. They don't get a split. But anyway, that thing is coming on September the 1st, and the exemptions are clear. And I don't know if we're going to see any real reduction in people's consumption habits. And remember, you know, natural sugar 
with the amount of pop that we drink in this province is not good for us. But even in the diet beverages, the aspartames of the world are also not good for us. So I don't know how much healthier they are, period. They might hold less calories, but the overall impact to your health, not so sure. Let's go out and take a break. When we come back, we got a caller in the queue, Dave? We'll be speaking with you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Well, during the commercial break, they were just reading an email where someone asked for some clarification on something I said off the top regarding the amendments to Bill 61, the potential for the private sector to uh, establish wind farms whether that be onshore or offshore, to use it to generate on-site and or for export. And I made reference to what that's going to mean for the ratepayers associated with Muskrat Falls. The, the issue is that it's not a consumption issue. It's a fixed cost. So if it was simply just about how many kilowatt hours I purchased and that alone with an established price set by the PUB, which is not going to happen because the PUB has been held out of it because of Bill 60, with a fixed cost, the fewer kilowatt hours consumed just means we're going to pay more per kilowatt hour because it doesn't matter to the lenders how much power we use and how many consumers are on the other end. It simply matters how much money we owe them per month, per quarter, on an annualized basis. So that's the, the long and the short of it is the less of us using Muskrat Falls power, the more we're going to pay per kilowatt hour. Now, how does that impact some of the so-called rate mitigation plans that have been put in place? And we see that the financing has now been secured through some 21 bonds uh, released by the uh, CIBC, the Canadian Imperial Bank of Canada. I really get tired of the acronyms. So that, of course, the 5.2 included an additional or an extension of $1 billion on the federal loan guarantee, another billion-dollar loan, and $3.2 billion associated with Hiberni royalties, or revenues anyway. So that's the, that's the nitty-gritty of what this means. Now, in addition... They go on to say why, you know, when the Federal Emissions Report, Greenhouse Gas Emissions Report, was released last week, and they made reference to low carbon-intensity oils and realizing, and they even talk about increasing production, when I read between those lines, I thought it indicated that maybe Beta Nord is on the table. Maybe Beta Nord may indeed be improved. But with all the switches and talk about more and more wind and the CNLOPB is now the Energy Board and Energy NL, the one, co- the one entity or organization that still is optimistic on the project is Equinor, the proponent. They're floating over the West Aquarius drill rig, and the, da- the daily rate on that, as we talked with Rob Strong last week, has got to be a couple hundred thousand dollars. So they're bullish. They might know something we don't. And I don't think there's a coincidence with the federal and provincial budget on the same day. So is there going to be some sort of announcement, either today, tomorrow, or Friday? You know, the old bad news Friday 5 p.m. dump? Anyway, let's see. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the executive director at the Newfoundland Labrador Forest Industry Association. That's Bill Dawson. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. How about you? Not a great. Not a little livid, actually. And, and some of the reason of that, Patty, is because here we have an announcement, and, and I spoke to you last week about the fact that we have you know, the university uh, had an announcement of the university concerned with the money that's being spent. Government is concerned with the money that's being spent at the university. But yet, what we see is two weeks ago, they weren't concerned about it when they decided to electrify the university. And it's concerning because we're looking at the potential 
of saving the university, the the price of a Rothschild report every year. I mean, that's that's kind of money we're talking about. Yeah, but the the electrification at Memorial University wasn't money coming out of the uh, the university's budget, as far as I understand. It was ten point five million dollars invested by the province outside of the monies they transfer to the university. So it wasn't how Mun spent the money; it was how the provincial government decided to do some electrification work. Yeah, uh, Patty, the university spends about ten million dollars a year, and to heat its university. Yeah, and so when they go and they switch over to electricity. They will that ten million dollars will likely, and they should have done the study. We believe they should do the study. That ten million dollars will now probably cost them thirteen, twelve, thirteen million dollars because electricity is more expensive on average. Biomass is that much cheaper that we could have saved them probably five million bucks a year. So as opposed to paying thirteen million dollars now, they could be paying six or seven million dollars. So these are the types of things that we don't understand. And then to hear that, you know, we're going to approve wind farms and we're concerned that wind is going to, we got to be careful with the wind because we cannot cannibalize muskrat falls. We get muskrat falls are cannibalizing the opportunities that we saw, you know, that we have on biomass. It just doesn't make sense, Patty. I mean, we, if we're that concerned about saving money, and we are, and not only saving money, when we talk about biomass we talk about a triple bottom line we talk about saving money we talk about creating local jobs we talk about being good for the uh, environment that's a triple bottom line they're doing it everywhere patty out in the university of bc in vancouver okay 2.7 million people live in vancouver 65,000 students go to that university and they use biomass and the reason they use biomass because it saves money and so if we need to be looking at the university and how we can save money, these are the types of things that we need to be looking at. They knew the opportunity was there. I met with them four years ago, but it was completely ignored. They don't talk about, you know, how, how much we're going to save by using electricity. There was, that's not part of the discussion, right? So we have this opportunity. It was a triple bottom line opportunity. And as a, as a province that has, you know, the fiscal situation that we've got ourselves in, we need to be looking at every opportunity to save money. This was also and about uh, emissions, right? So, no, well, it was. We can't talk about emissions. We're, we're yeah, when we go, if we're going to talk about emissions, okay? Why wouldn't we? we? We should. We absolutely should. But let's look at it. it yeah, the conversation, we can talk, when we talk about emissions, I talk about Baden-Nord. When we talk about Baden-Nord, what we first talk about is money. It's going to be uh, revenue uh, royalties. It's going to be revenue to the province. It's going to create jobs. And yes, even we're talking about um, an oil project, there's some environmental benefits as hard as we try and push it. So why wouldn't we want to look at the university and say, number one, how do we save money? How do we create jobs? You know, How do we uh, reduce uh, our carbon emissions? And it's a win-win-win, right? That's what it is. Okay. Let's talk emissions because that was part of the the motivation here for that money, that spend at the provincial government. So what are the comparisons, emissions with this electric boiler versus using biomass? The emissions are, we are zero carbon emissions. You're we are neutral. You're not we're carbon positive? 
we're neutral. I don't, I don't know if uh, is, is electricity carbon positive. That's not the conversation, Patty. We're in a situation. Here we are talking about Memorial having the opportunity to save money. Okay? It, it'd be great if we could go out and be carbon positive, if everybody could be carbon positive. It'd be great if, uh, if Bade North could be carbon positive. But that's not the situation we're talking about. We're talking about money first. Money, jobs, environment. That's what we're looking at. We have a good opportunity here. You know, why, why is it not good for us? Is there a double standard for our sector versus other sectors? I don't, I don't get it, Pat. You know, somebody needs to explain as to why they chose to, to ignore biomass as an opportunity. Why are we being cannibalized? Right? And we'd like to understand. The university knew it. The president knew it. Government knows it. Someone needs to speak to it. Are you already powering some of the CNA campuses? I can't remember the answer to that one. No, Patty, what they did is they, they put out a tender so uh, we can go and bid on some CNA campuses. That's, that's like throwing crumbs. We're trying to start an energy sector here from biomass. You need an anchor customer to start. Mon, burning 10.5 million liters a year, is that anchor customer that would help us launch. Here we are, people with with uh, oil furnaces, you know, we can save them money as opposed to having to switch electricity. Okay, yeah. how, how about how about like private operations, Marathon Gold and Valentine Lake? I mean, that could be an anchor if there ever was one. I mean, companies like that to establish the biomass as an alternative. I mean, is that the work that you do? We these are they're brand new. No, we what we are looking at right now is is the opportunities that are low hanging fruit. And Memorial University is one of those opportunities. Like I said, they're doing it at universities elsewhere. You know, why Why we didn't look at it, given the light of, of the fiscal realities of the university? How can we reduce those costs? Someone needs to speak to it, Patty. And I'm glad you spoke to it again this week, uh, Bill. I appreciate you making time. Thanks, buddy. Take, take good care. care. Bye-bye. Okay, All bye. right, let's, uh, sorry about that. But quick, uh, Let's take a very quick break. When we come back, the Prophecy's Chief Medical Officer of Health is Dr. Janice Fitzgerald. She's in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Join us on line number two is the Prophecy's Chief Medical Officer of Health. That's Dr. Janice Fitzgerald. Dr. Fitzgerald, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we haven't seen the regular briefings. They've been a thing of the past. But, you know, it was only at the end of January that Canada saw its first two cases of the Omicron subvariant BA2 what do we know about it here in this province? Um, so we know that we have cases of BA2 in the province, and, you know, that's not really unexpected, given that it is a little more transmissible than the BA1, the original Omicron variant that we saw. Um, and when things are a little more transmissible, they're likely going to, um, you know, spread a little more effectively. So, um, so we are seeing cases of it here, and uh, we screen on a regular basis a certain proportion of our um, samples that have been taken for PCR. And uh, the last one that we have, which was last week, was a, that we were seeing about 40, a little less than 40% of uh, samples had uh, BA2. And how does it compare to Omicron insofar as uh, severity? So with regard to severity, um, we're really not seeing uh, much of a difference between BA1 and BA2. So still, uh, you know, uh, compared to other variants, a milder disease. Um, so, yeah, not seeing, not seeing an increase in severity, not here and not elsewhere. Dr. Hagee, uh, a couple of days ago, referred to the fact that the modeling says that we're at or near peak. With the changing in test protocols, 
because we do know, if you listen to mathematical biologist Dr. Amy Herford at Memorial University, the active caseload that's being reported can probably times it by as much as five, possibly. Mm-hmm. So what's the modeling based on? So the modeling is looking at a few different things. Um, so some are looking at cases over 60. So, <clears throat> you know, our case, we didn't change testing uh, for people who are over 60. They're still able to get a test. And so when we look at that, uh, it gives us an idea of what's happening in the community. And that's been a constant um, through the pandemic. Um, so we look at that. We look at hospitalization. So there's some modeling that's based on, on a hospital hospitalization numbers. Um, and then, you know, we're looking at just rates of rise and um, and rates of people uh, admitted to hospital who have COVID-19, who may not be there for COVID-19, but with COVID-19. So all of these uh, um, different indicators tell us uh, you know, have said, indicated to the modeling team that perhaps we are nearing the peak. Um, So, I mean, unfortunately with peaks, you only know once you pass them, but, um, but certainly, you know, looking that way. Modeling is an imperfect science, as we know, and Dr. Rahman is obviously a, uh, a deep thinking, intelligent man. What faith do you put in the modeling? So I think the, we have to look at, you know, what the modeling has shown us um, so far, and, and certainly it has been very helpful. It has um, helped us to um, look at trajectory, especially during this wave, and see where things are going. And certainly we've seen that the predictions have, um, you know, they have borne out. And so, But they've so been largely we, inaccurate, though, haven't they? So it's difficult to look at previous to now because you know we had so few cases comparatively speaking so you're looking at uh, they're trying to do um, look at other things but you know at this point what we're seeing what the modeling predicted um, sort of at the beginning of the Omicron wave and when we started to reopen we're certainly seeing those numbers um, borne out now with regard to hospitalizations which is you know the main thing that we're looking at these days. I don't know how much uh, data or information individuals want regarding COVID-19, but with modeling, for instance, because we're not talking about uh, all the deep dives we had when the press briefings were happening, for confidence in public health and public health policy, do you think it would be helpful, in your opinion, for the people in the province to have a look at this modeling or be told by Dr. Rahman, you know, given the presentations we've had in the past, because it's been the confidence in public health that has led to personal behavior that has been largely responsible for keeping us as safe as we've been. Yeah, so I think that uh, certainly the, uh, you know, the modeling that we have right now and, you know, doing media like this will certainly uh, reiterate that. But, um, you know, decisions about what happens, uh, uh, what happens with the modeling are not necessarily just mine to make. So I, I don't think it would be fair to me to com- of me to comment on that. You've talked about uh, the capacity that we have at the, in the hospitals, some 40 to 60. The last update was 43. Now, I know the hub will be updated at some point around lunchtime today, unless you're willing to give us a little sneak peek right now. <laughs> I don't actually have that information yet this morning. So with 43 in the hospital, I believe the last number was nine in critical care. We're in that zone, that numbers that you've used. Yep. So what's your level of concern? Because with more and more people contracting it, the likelihood based on math is that more and more people may indeed need to be hospitalized. So what's your level of concern today? So right now I think we are, you know, we're watching things carefully and um, certainly we're looking at how quickly things are changing. And and right now, you know, when we look at our doubling time, we're certainly seeing that that's you know, um, almost two weeks. It's never gone below 12 days in the last little while. So, um, you know, we're we're comfortable with where we are right now, and certainly it seems as if the uh, the health system can handle where we are and where we expect to be.
What have we seen in the schools? Because it's been a self-reporting and honor system. You know, you take a rapid antigen test, and if it's a positive, stay home. If you're feeling unwell, stay home. Some of the attendance numbers we hear from the district, I'm not going to get you to comment on uh, the numbers coming from the district, but they don't quite jive with what I see on the ground. My wife's an educator. Of course, many of my friends would have children in the school system. What are you seeing in schools? Because it sounds like there's an awful lot of children at home. So, um you know, I don't have the latest in uh, with regard to absentee reports this morning, but, uh, you know, we certainly expect that there is spread through the community, and we know that that is going to happen. I think it was actually a little worse um, a week or two ago, but uh, and we'll start to see things, uh, you know, uh, slow down a little bit, but um, it's not unexpected that we will see cases in these age groups. I mean, these, these kids are, you know, they're in school together, they're in... Um, uh, extracurricular activities together um, they are friends and they play together you know they they attend uh, social events together so um, it wouldn't be uncommon to see spread through that community I know public health is there to monitor what's happening in the public with whether it be the seasonal influenza and or uh, COVID-19 but what we haven't had a whole lot of conversation about is how we can boost our own immune system, whether it be healthy lifestyles, maybe a change in diet, vitamin D and otherwise. Can we anticipate a campaign to, you know, looking down the road for a healthier population? Because throughout this, we really talked about reacting to the numbers and active caseloads. So what can people anticipate with public health maybe leading the charge, talking about healthier things, whether it be vitamins or otherwise? Well, you know, the work of public health is all about um all about healthy populations and uh you know we we certainly are looking and um you know starting to turn our attention now to some of these things that we haven't had a chance to work on in the last two years um and certainly when we look at things like social determinants of health which really are are what we have to look at to improve our population's health um you know we've been uh, there's been a, a, a big move on uh, personal responsibilities and, and uh, you know, doing all these individual things to take care of our health. And while all of that is important, um, what we know about health is that uh, the, so, the, these other determinants, such as income, education, um, you know, early childhood, all of these are uh, have much larger impact on health. And uh, so these are the things that public health is uh, looking forward to to working on with our communities uh, throughout the province in the coming coming years. People are, I think, you know, the, uh, the uptake for vaccinations in this province it leads the country and certainly might lead the world. But people might start getting a little bit wary of booster after booster. There's some recent guidance, as recent as yesterday, come from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization regarding the fourth shot. In B.C., they've already gone ahead with the fourth shot program for certain individuals. What do we know about yesterday's update or summary on the most recent advice from uh, NACI? Yeah, so NACI is recommending that, uh, you know, that a fourth dose would be recommended for certain proportions of the population. So people we know who don't, uh, may not necessarily form as good an immune response um, to vaccines in general um, and to the COVID-19 vaccine as well. So, um, and we know certainly that there is waning of protection from the vaccines as, as the further out you get from, from um, uh, say, a, do a, a dose of the vaccine. So um, this is, you know, given what we're seeing right now in, in epidemiology and given the fact that there is waning immunity, um, NACI came out and, and made this recommendation yesterday for for fourth doses in people who live in 
congregate living settings in, uh, for seniors and then for anyone over the age of 80. So that was a strong recommendation. And then anyone over 70 uh, was a discretionary recommendation. So we're looking at that now and, uh, and uh, discussing with uh, the RHAs to, to look at a plan moving forward. What's your role in decision-making regarding access and price of rapid test kits? In other provinces, I can walk into Starbucks and take a kit home with me. Do you play any role in how the province is dealing with rapid test kits? Uh, so, you know, certainly we are consulted on how to use rapid testing to the best uh, it, best way possible, and uh, and that's really our major role. And, uh, uh, you know, we've been involved, public health has been involved in those conversations, but again, those are all things that we're looking at as we move forward. What about mandates? Do you play any role in that, or is that a political decision? Because, you know, government policy and public health policy will have a, a rationale for implementation, then ways to measure, and then ways to measure whether or not it's effective anymore. Those who want to be vaccinated, they are. Those who don't, will not be. I mean, time has tell, told the tale. Do you play any role in mandates, whether it be the imposition and or easing? So... Um Depending on what you're talking about, so if there's a public health emergency, the Act actually gives uh, the Chief Medical Officer of Health authority to make special measures orders. Um, so that is one thing. Um, and, of course, we don't have public health emergency now, so, uh, so there will be no special measures orders from the Chief Medical Officer of Health. Um, and then mandates are, you know... <laughs> The uh, vaccine mandate uh, was uh, developed through a different route, so uh, that didn't, you know, didn't involve the CMOH directly. Of course, we consulted on it, but we it didn't involve us directly. How carefully are we monitoring side effects? We know there's the possibility for an adverse uh, effect, whether it be sore arm, all the way to much more serious issues. What do we know about the numbers of people who have suffered adverse effects in this province beyond the sore arm? Uh, so we certainly monitor things very closely. We have a, a process called ad adverse events uh, following immunization. And, uh, you know, so if anybody presents with a significant adverse event, uh, a report gets filed and then that gets sent to the public health agency and it gets uh, collated there. Um, I don't have specific information about numbers of adverse events here this morning. But Are they dozens or hundreds? I really couldn't tell you, to be quite honest, and I don't want to. I don't want to say, you know, without actually knowing the um, the actual uh, data. <laughs> Can you help us understand uh, natural immunity versus the immunity that we're afforded, even if we have our third booster? Sorry, can you so say that again? Someone who is, say, for instance, unvaccinated, they get it. They create some natural immunity. We yes. have some protections associated with the vaccine, of course, albeit they wane. Which wanes quicker, the vaccine protection or natural immunity? So um, I don't know if that anyone's ever sort of looked at that in particular. Uh, we know that both will wane over time, which is why, uh, you know, you need to... Uh, um, which is why you can get colds over and over again. If we think about other coronaviruses, you know, that cause common colds, you can get those over and over again. So immunity does wane over time with both. Um, and certainly from vaccines, what we know is that, uh, you know, when you're getting out to about six months, that that immunity is waning to a point where we would like you to get a boost. What we do know is that getting, uh, being fully up to date on your vaccina <clears throat> vaccinations is certainly protective against severe disease. And, um, you know, even if you've had an infection, we know that getting your second dose, if you haven't had your second dose, or getting the recommended boosters, uh, that will actually improve your immunity as well. Uh, last one, or maybe second last one. Uh, when will the booster campaign for 12 to 18 happen? 
so we haven't gotten a recommendation about that yet from NASI. So once we once we get that information, then certainly we'll have more information on that. And we'll leave it at that because we're way over time. But we certainly appreciate your time this morning, Dr. Okay. Fitzgerald. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number one. Uh, good morning, Roger. You're on the air. Roger? Yeah, so good morning, Patty. Good morning. How are you today? Doing well, thanks. How about you? Good. Uh, Patty, uh, I'm a first-time caller since I retired, and I listen to your show every day. And uh, I must say I'm impressed with, uh, with the contribution that you're making on your program to the citizens of Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, I appreciate Henry that. Thank VIII you. Henry VIII said to uh, one of his wives, I won't keep you long, but I did want to bring you up to speed and your uh, listeners as to what happens when you lose your family doctor, what happens to your health care records? Mm-hmm. And if you got a minute, I just wanted to walk you through my story, is that last year I lost my family doctor, and uh, for several months uh, I had to phone around to every medical clinic uh, in my coverage area, in the Grand Falls-Windsor area, Botwood, uh, even Springdale, to see if I could find a family doctor. And, you know, uh, I did. I was very fortunate in that I did find a doctor that was willing to take me, and uh, and I have a scheduled appointment with that uh, doctor tomorrow to go over my uh, my situation, my medical records, and uh, and everything. Uh, the doctor has informed me that he's not able to access my family or my personal health care records because those records have been shipped out of province and that I would have to pay a private company in Ontario uh, uh, to get them back. Uh, now, I was supposed to have received a letter sometime in January informing me that uh, my records were no longer going to be available to me. Uh, but I have never received that letter. I only got a copy of that letter through my new family doctor uh, after I got the phone number to phone the company in Ontario. So the company in Ontario, which is DocuDavid Medical Solutions, mm-hmm. uh, have sent me a letter saying that if I sign the dotted line or get the early bird special uh, before February the 28th, I can get my medical records for $113.50, plus I have to pay uh, the extra 15% tax to the Newfoundland government. If I wait till after February the 28th, that cost goes to $121.50. So for a family of two, uh, husband and spouse, uh, before uh, February the 28th, you get to pay $217 plus tax. 
But if you wait till after February the 28th, you have to pay 225. And for each additional patients or members of your family who are going to that medical clinic, there's a charge of $69 each. So you do the math on what a family of four will have to pay to get access to their medical records. So it's uh, it's it's just another how many more taxes, how many more fees do you have to pay to live in this province to get uh, to get quality health care? The letter that I have now received uh, through the uh, DocuDavid uh, company in Ontario from my family doctor uh, says that your medical history is an important part of effective health care management. But please note that every individual over the age of 19 must sign on to this document to get your records. And this is required to ensure the privacy of the record. Now, am I to assume that if I decline to, uh, to sign on to pay uh, that money to get access to my health care records, that my privacy is not going to be insured? Well, I would imagine they're bonded for privacy protection issues. But here's a couple of things that I don't quite understand about this, is that there must be some sort of fee paid by that document company to a doctor to be the holder of medical records. Because if I think if we were going to do it correctly, the retiring GP should turn over the records to MCP. Because we have an abs- we actually have an in-province opportunity to pay a very minimal fee. 20 bucks a year, uh, I think it's up to a maximum of, of $75 for however many years are going to be covered. So if we did that, because that fee is already in place, I don't know why we need third-party document protectors. Well, we have a process for in-province and out-of-province uh, fees to be paid to get your medical records. So I just don't know why that's not the go-to in the first place. In in that uh, air, there's eligibility requirements, copy of your MCP, driver's license, and things like that. For seniors who get the drug card, they don't pay any fee through MCP. For folks on social assistance, they don't pay any fees through MCP. So we've got to just change the process. Let's take the third party out. Exactly. We've got an established exactly. process already in province through MCP. That should be the only opportunity opportunity for any doctor, in my opinion. Well, you're absolutely uh, correct, and I raised this issue in a news article uh, uh, yesterday, and when I listened to the health minister talk about it last evening, uh, he sort of implied and suggested that people like me, who's on a fixed income, uh, uh, should have picked up my health care records from the family doctor before he left. Well, that's great, but I had no idea, and I still haven't received a letter from the family doctor. I'm getting everything secondhand through uh, the the company in in, uh, Ontario. But I I live four minutes from my doctor's office. I could have picked up my file, as the minister has suggested I do, and uh, brought it home and put it in safekeeping in my basement. But unfortunately, uh, I was misled. I had no idea that my medical health care records are uh, shipped out of province and that now I, I now have to pay 
because uh, it's after February the 28th for me, I have to pay $225 to get them back. Understood. Roger, if you send me an email, one of the regional health authorities just sent me some additional information talking about if the regional health authority is the custodian of your health information, that's one thing. I don't know if this also applies to what well, are independent contractors, for the lack of a better term, for GPs. So, but there's also the fee-for-service providers are indeed independent, but they have to adhere to all kinds of rules regarding personal health information. So if you send me an email, I'll send you the link to ensure that who you're dealing with is abiding by the rules of the public health information system or association. Well, I, I spoke to the College of Physicians on okay. this. I spoke to my MHA, and the college position uh, the, uh, on this is the fact this is normal. This is a normal uh, uh, undertaking when uh, you lose your family doctor and government can't replace them. Uh, so uh, if, if that's where health care is going, uh, then, boy, change can't come fast enough because this is just another expense that's being levied on, on uh, uh, people on fixed incomes, senior citizens, and uh, and it's just not uh, it's just not where healthcare should be trending at this point in time. But I thank you very much, uh, Patty, and uh, and I uh, appreciate you uh, doing that. And I will send you that information. And I'll send along the link. Hopefully, it's of some help. But you know, as we discussed. We just have to change the entire protocol and process. There's no need for a third party to be involved here. We have the protocols in place at the regional health authorities and at MCP to be the caretaker of your information with a minimal fee versus the extraordinary fee that we're discussing here this morning. Roger, I wish you well. Send me that note. I'll send along the link. Okay, and it was nice talking to you. I saw you. uh, I spoke to you briefly at the Herder Finals in Grand Falls when the St. John's Caps were playing the Cataracts. I enjoyed the uh, brief conversation then, and I'm uh, enjoying your conversations now. Yeah, we were in tough with that particular, uh, that uh, harder final. Boy, the cataracts were really stern that year. Holy moly. (laughs) All the best, and I enjoy your show. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Roger. Talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, is there even a rationale behind this? You know, with records to be kept in province, with processes that are available, seems to be much more beneficial to the patient, to the individual. So I'm not quite sure why it is the way it is. But anyway, uh, today's a good day to get on the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to talk about whatever you want to talk about is 273-5211 or elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. And I will say, not confirmed, but hearing some rumblings that there may indeed be an announcement regarding Beta Nord sometime today, maybe late afternoon or early evening. I'm trying to confirm that as the show proceeds, but that's the rumble out there. We can talk about whatever you want to talk about after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Morning, Bev. You're on the air. Um, I was just listening to you uh, speaking about uh, Dr. Dave Company. You're a caller that called in? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I'm in the same position as what he's in. At least he got a letter. I got nothing after my doctor left. I, it's a deeply flawed process, as far as I can tell, and someone can fill me in if I'm on the wrong track here. And I know that the MCP records that are given to uh, that the doctors provide is simply a record of billing, not a breakdown of illness. I know that to be true, but my point is that if we're sending MCP any information, why couldn't we include what illnesses and treatments have been prescribed by the GP in addition to the billing records? Because it can all come in the one fell swoop. We can electronically transfer that stuff as easy as can be. 
Exactly. And I went up to the uh, clinic and uh, I wanted to know where my records were. And they said they didn't know. But the recording that was on the phone, when I phoned uh, my doctor's number, all it said was, you know, your records are now gone to Dr. David Company. There was no phone number, no nothing. And it just said that Dr. David Company will contact you, but I have heard nothing. Well, that's not good enough. <laughs> you know, no, it certainly isn't. I have no family doctor at all. But I'm worried more about my records, about the privacy issue. Of course you are. I mean, you don't know if they're being kept private because you don't even know where they are. No, exactly. Yeah, that's not good enough. You think it would be incumbent on the doctor to inform his clientele, his patient roster, exactly what's next steps. I mean, this should be easy enough. Uh, saying all that, I'm just wondering, would this doctor sell our records to this company? I don't know what the relationship would be. I'm going to imagine that if they're a third-party independent contractor, then they're not doing it for fun. There must be some relationship between the company and the doctors because if not every doctor is using it, it sounds like they're out there looking for business, which means there's some sort of transaction, I would guess. But I'll have to clarify that and get confirmation from the college because there's something that is an unnecessary step in the process here. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, it's just that you can't seem to be able to speak to anybody or get any answers. Yeah, isn't that the way with so many things that we deal with today? It's hard to get a human being on the other end of the telephone. Yes, yes, that's true. But let me see what uh, I can find out. Okay. Uh, will uh, you call me? or? I'll speak well, about I'll... it on the, on the show. So here's the deal. You're going to have to tune in to every single minute forevermore <laughs> so you can hear it. <laughs> that sounds fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sounds good to me too. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Beth. Bye bye. Bye bye. Uh, let's go to line one. Doc, you're on the air. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> As a veteran, you'd figure you'd know to turn down the radio. Doc, on line number one, are you there? Hi, Patty. Hi there. How are you? Not too bad, I suppose. You? Uh, very good, I must say, Patty. Patty, I want to make a comment on this medical record issue, okay. as well as a comment on uh, the Atlantic Accord and Beta Nord. I'm shocked. <laughs> I figured I'd hit you with the first one and that it catch you off guard. No problem. Where, where do you want to go? Medical <laughs> records. Let's start there. Yeah, I'll tell you. You know, th there's no reason for anybody in Newfoundland and Labrador to have to pay to get their medical records. And I'll tell you my experience. But and just quickly, very quickly. As far as I'm concerned, it's, it's right on the lap of the individual doctor. Now, about 10 years ago, my doctor decided he was going to retire. And I got a call from his office to say that he was retiring within a month, and I could come in at any time and pick up my medical records, or I could make arrangements for them to be sent to another doctor, and at the end of the month, at that point in time, the records would then be sent to this company in Ontario, and they would, of course, keep them private, and I would have to pay a fee to get them back. 
Okay. That's so, the way it should be. Sure, and that sounds reasonable to me, even though you said there's no need to ever pay a fee. Like, if the records are transferred to MCP, I don't see the real downside of playing a clerical fee because someone's doing some work. So if it's $25, that's a long stretch from the numbers that Mr. Pike was talking yeah, I, about. So. I, I, I agree, and but clearly, if Dr. O'Keefe, or I shouldn't say that because there is a Dr. O'Keefe, but anyhow, if I decide that I'm a doctor and I'm going to retire, then the onus is on me to contact my patients and say, look, I'm retiring in six weeks' time. Your records are here in my office. Feel free to come and pick them up uh, or make other arrangements and... Uh, failing that, they will be shipped to this security office. End of story. I mean, that's simple as that. For any doctor to retire or leave without notifying his patients and giving them the opportunity to pick up the records is a disgrace. Now, remember, back with the Cameron inquiry on the uh, hormone receptor fiasco uh, debacle, there was the talk about implementing full online medical records. Now, yeah. that would only be for access for doctors or for pharmacists or what have you. I get it. But if every patient was given a, a code to access it upon the retirement of their doctor and to simply on your own transfer it to your new doctor, maybe something because we are yeah. able to exchange information so easily these days, you think that we could all play a role. So in, inside the province's medical records, we don't want anybody to have the ability to go snooping around like so many staff at the regional health authorities have done. But if I had a code that I could, I could simply only see mine, maybe that's a way we can do away with the, yep. the cost and the confusion and the, the, the burden that people are having to face. Fairball. Yeah, another, I mean, that's another avenue to do the same thing. And the bottom line is people should know that their doctor is leaving and be given the opportunity to pick up their records. Atlantic Accord, uh, you know, when this is over, this Beta Nord issue, when this is finally settled, then I'm going to be pushing for an analysis of where we stand right now on the Atlantic Accord. What exactly were the rights that we had back in 1985 under the Accord. Have, do we still have them, or have we lost them? If we lost them, why did we lose them? And that, that uh, fundamental decisions clause, for example, comes into play. That's number one. What gives you reason to think that uh, there's been an amendment made? Well, well, I'm told, that, as you know, that under the Fundamental Decisions Clause, we still have the final approval. I'm also told that uh, a few years back, a government, made, government went down the road of allowing the feds to have total control over any environmental assessment. Before that, it was in the hands of the CNLOPB. Uh, and it was to be shared, participated in by both the federal and provincial governments. I'm told that we have lost that or we gave it away. So all I want to see is a, a, a committee of two people. I would suggest somebody like Ron Penny, for example, to look at the Atlantic Accord as it stood in 1985, as it stands today, and do we still have the same authorities today that we agreed to in 1985? My understanding is we do. The people that I speak with off-air, and what the issue is, so says industry and or others, uh, that will, shall remain nameless because they've asked me to keep them out of it, um, 
is that's absolutely still part of his is, that's what i've been told the issue is for the companies with the uncertainty presented by a federal rejection that makes them feel a little bit wobbly because there's still a federal provincial board that oversees the industry so who has the 5149 clout is the worry that the companies might have so i've read a a rejection federally kind of means the end of it. So is the inside baseball word that I get from folks. Well, my inside is the other way, that we still have final approval under the fundamental clause, number one, and number two, and and I can get it in writing for you, that the, uh, the participation by the province in the environmental assessment process has now been passed over to the feds. Uh, for example, on the Baden-Ord issue, the... The environmental assessment was done solely by the federal government without any participation by the province. That is not what was agreed to under the Atlantic Accord. So I would like to have some finality to that, and and the way to, to do that is to have somebody knowledgeable in jurisprudence, in law, and in marine law and so on, uh, have a look at that accord and see where we stand for the future. But so you're telling me that there was a standalone provincial assessment, then a standalone federal assessment on no, offshore I, rock? No, no well, I'm telling you there was one assessment process, but it was shared by both. Both both the province and the federal government under the Atlantic Accord yeah. participated in the environmental assessment process. Yeah, how do you share an environmental assessment? Well, the same way you share the authority under the Atlantic Accord, the same way you share jurisdiction on the offshore. You know, sharing is sharing. Yeah, benefits and enforcing regulations and royalties and taxes is all a little bit more fundamental than scientific impact assessments. Uh, but anyway, I'll, I'll yeah, take I mean, word for like it. We shared fishery with the federal government. Oh, I made no. a mess out of that same time you know but anyhow okay. uh the other thing is quickly you are hearing beta nord is coming down today well there's a couple of rumbles from people who've okay. got their air to the ground both here in and in ottawa say that there's the possibility of an announcement coming today now i've tried to confirm with all hands that are potentially involved no reaction quite yet but you know and i said it off the top without even hearing the rumblings initially when things are starting to move at breakneck pace with rebranding and trying to deal with the uh, budgets that coincide on the exact same day, there's, you know, when the province would deliver a budget after the federal budget, it was because we knew what was in the federal budget that pertains to and the transfer of cash to this province. But that's not happening this year. It just gives me reason to believe that there's something else going on. That's well, all. I, I think it was you or somebody on VOCM News this morning say, and, and I think it's correct, that nothing happens coincidentally. That was me. And, you know, we've Noia's gone, and I agree with it, gone from Noia to uh, Energy NL. Uh, now the CNLOPB has become the CNLOEB. So we're broadening the energy perspective, which I agree with. And uh, two budgets at the same time, and a pending decision on Beta Nord is kind of like. It's all going to come at us at once. Yeah, because, and if it does happen today, it can't be bad news. If it happens on Friday, it very likely could be. So that's the <laughs> issue with po timing and politics, man. This is a, It's a yeah. science, right? So yeah. anyway, off I go, Doc. Appreciate the time. Hey, last thing, Patty. The last thing. Uh, I don't know what's coming down in the budget tomorrow, 
but it is absolutely disgraceful that our government has allowed the, the price of heat, in particular furnace oil, to go to the extent that it has, and in particular, if there's another 20 cents on a litre tomorrow, there's going to be a lot of people who are not only cold and frustrated, but who will be determined to toss this government out. Appreciate the time, Doc. Thanks for this. Thanks, Freddie. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. When we come back, uh, Leo wants to talk about our resources, the wealth of, and the benefits of meditation. I'm into that. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Dr. Francis Scully. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you for asking. How are you? Yeah, I'm grand. And uh, there is a lot happening. And talking about, well, I do think things can coincide, but... um, Uh, I would just mention in terms of uh, a lot happening at once um, that Svetlana Kraskova, who is one of the or the top um, scientists writing the the most recent IPCC report, which is terrifying, was working on that just at the time that Putin chose to invade Ukraine. And while she and she's as far as I know, she's still alive and still working on it. Um, what what so exactly is she working on? Our, our coincidences, I think part of the reason that Putin chose to invade Ukraine was to bury the IPCC report. So there. <laughs> what, what is that report working? What is the content of that report working towards? Like what's what's the issue? Climate change. Oh, climate change. She's the top climate. She's one of the some of the Ukrainians are some of the top climate change scientists in the world. You can look at the Kiev Independent online. You can get it. And they have been advocating to move away from fossil fuels and invest in wind and solar um, and to stop, um, you know, giving Putin all the money he has to, you know, destroy so many lives and people and so on. So, yeah, anyway, that's just part of the very complicated mix we're living with now. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, we have. Uh, a copious amount of reports or numbers of reports out there saying the exact same thing. But uh, a fair point on that one, Dr. Scully. What's your discipline? Just curiosity. Uh, hematology. Onco- hemat- well, I don't practice oncology now, but I'm a hematologist. Onco- co- my discipline was hematology oncology, and I um, have not been working full-time since 2017 due to illness, and I work part-time. Very lucky to do so as a hematologist, a blood specialist, benign blood specialist. Very well. I uh, appreciate that. And uh, what else is on your mind this morning? Something interesting insofar as meditation goes. Yes. So I've had a, a long, lifelong interest in meditation and study different types and so on. And in 2004, I actually trained to teach what's called Christian meditation. And I had a little group at the health sciences. And, uh, but at that time, I didn't have any um, information in terms of science. So um, uh, And since then... Uh, and a lot happened to me in 2017. I was I discovered that the that Stanford Medical School has a Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. Well, well for 40 years there have been been these mind-body conferences sponsored by His Holiness the Lama and, and other people, uh, looking at the science of compassion and kindness, the, the neuroscience. So I discovered that Stanford had a program to train people to teach. 
a particular form of meditation called compassion cultivation training, and uh, I applied to um, learn to, to, to train to take this course, and uh, within about a week, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, so I realized I wasn't going to be, going to be able to fulfill all the training requirements, which involved traveling to Palo Alto twice, and I contacted them, and they arranged for me to take the course initially online. They had just started to teach the the because the, to train to teach you, you had to first take the course and then go on from there. So I took this course in uh, the summer of 2017, and I was on chemotherapy at the time, so I was very unwell, very miserable, and it really helped me. Yeah. So then I went on to train to teach the course. Yeah. I do not actually formally, as far as I'm aware, uh, meditate. I'm lost in thought for most of the waking day and unfortunately some wakeful hours at night. But some of the some of the things that are, you know, to deal with anxiety or stress or what have you, blood pressure. But what I found most interesting, and just a little tiny bit I know about it, is meditation as it pertains to not only emotional control, but memory loss and attention span and things like that. I found that to be fascinating. I would have never associated meditation with curbing uh, uh, memory loss, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you that I had dreadful memory loss as part of my chemo, and it is, you know, gradually improving, and maybe it would have happened anyway, but I do think that meditation helps, Yeah. Because we talk about word games, brain games for people that are aging in insofar as uh, staving off dementia, Alzheimer's, or what have you. But apparently meditation plays an active role in that arena as well. So I just found that to be really quite something. Maybe it's time because I do have a relatively stressful job and I really do depend on my memory and my attention span. Maybe meditation is something that, you know, it might be well, just the thing. Join the course April 21st, 7 to 9. You'll be very welcome, Patty. <laughs> Well, I've got to do something because my poor old brain is spinning 240 all day. Well, you can, you'll be welcome to join uh, the, uh, so, so, and actually, well, talking about coincidences, so Andrew Safer is a wonderful mindfulness-based, so, so there is as many forms of meditation as there are anything else. You know, I would say to you it's like sports, you know, like they're, they're, they have things in common, but there's, there's huge ver- variations, so... Um, and that's that's important. The type I, I I teach about seven different types actually because um, uh, actually either based on your personality or another person's personality or what's happening at the time, you may need to change your meditation practice. So, uh, for people who are interested, what do they need to do? Okay, so I have a website, becompassionatenl.inc. Uh, what I was going to say is Andrew Safer teaches mindfulness-based stress reduction, and Emily Lewis is new. She's young. She's just started. So there's a couple of really good people in the city, and it happens that Andrew is starting a course right at the same time as I am, and we didn't do that deliberately. So, <laughs> but, um, um, but he, And he has an excellent book uh, on anxiety and stress reduction and, med- and meditation. And, yeah, so... So for me, I have a website, becompassionatenl.ca, and I have, right now, I have 30 minutes for peace in the morning. So the thing is that um, 
there are many different ways that people can uh, cultivate peace and and it, and or a reflective practice. So it doesn't have to be meditation. It can be going for a walk. It can be enjoying nature. It can be uh, listening to music, like uh, art. There's, there's ma- many ways that we can um, um, just activate different parts of our brain and relax and uh, and and you know, help our stress. This yeah. is not intended to be a saucy or a silly question, but maybe this is what you see in the movies. What's the role of uh, audio cues in meditation? You know that people will sit there cross-legged and their arms extended to their side, and then the whole, um, is that anything real involved yes, with that? Does that is. play yes, an active role? And there's okay. a lot of different ones, and yes. So in the uh, in the Qigong tradition, there's a sister, Sheila Leonard, in the city, and she teaches Qigong, and I have taken some classes with her teacher and um so they ha- so they're so so in some the actual sounds and making them correctly help but also um just using a, a mantra that the person who founded um this sea care in in uh, in at stanford he is dr jim dotty he's a neurosurgeon and he's an atheist he doesn't have any religious practice and as a young boy, he's written a great book, Into the Magic Shop. And as a young boy, he said he was about to become a juvenile delinquent. He came from a very troubled background. And this woman taught him to meditate. And in his case, the mantra he chose, the word he chose, wasn't om or any of these things. He chose um, bicycle. <laughs> and it still worked for him. So, so some of it is just uh, that switching different parts of the brain and then but there is also uh, evidence that certain sounds in themselves um are beneficial to health it's fascinating i do have to run unfortunately because i'm enjoying the conversation curiously uh 92 years ago today 1931 uh ram das american guru mysticism spirituality he was born in america today in history 92 years ago yes yes a wonderful man and well worth listening to actually Yeah, yeah be here now yeah, okay. Right Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Scully. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number three, Wanda, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. Thank you. Um, I just want to encourage people out there, you'll see where I'm going with this, to call in if they've just recently lost their doctor. And I'll tell you why. It's the first time now in 60 years I'm going to be without a doctor. And, you know, as we get older, Patty, we start going on medications like I'm on blood pressure, cholesterol, etc. And there's many more like me. I've known three now in the past month who just get informed by their doctor, oh, I'm leaving the private practice because I've been offered a job in the hospital. Now, that's three in the past month doctors, local GP doctors being offered positions in the hospital. And I wonder if Dr. Hagee, if that's his way of recruiting more doctors is to take them from their private community practices and bring them in the hospital. Like, you know, my doctor now, there's 500 patients from her that is without a doctor now, and that is crazy. Yeah, I don't think that that particular book would rest on the minister's office. I would think that those are processes and regimes put forward by the regional health authorities themselves. They're the day-to-day guys. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me we have Heggy, who's a doctor. We have Premier Fury, who's a doctor. And we are in a crisis here for doctors. I mean, I, I'm my blood pressure's gone through the roof just thinking I'm going to have to go up every month and go to a walk-in clinic just to get blood pressure and cholesterol medication. Should never be. It should never be. We're we're not a third world country. Why are they making us out to be one? You know, those guys can fly out of province and see a doctor and pay the money and get the best to care. But the average Joe here in this province, we can't do that. You know, we can't even afford gas, let alone fly out for doctors. I mean, I have to wonder. You, I don't know if anyone's seen the picture. What's going on that so many of our doctors here, our regular doctors, are going to work now for the hospital, and all those positions are not being filled. Yeah, many family doctors, GPs, would have privileges at the hospital. We're kind of just shuffling doctors around, even when we talk about the establishment of the primary care collaborative clinics. If that just means a family doctor who was operating a clinic on Torbay Road is now all of a sudden on Monday Pond Road, that doesn't mean we added any capacity. We simply just moved a doctor from one place to another. So recruiting should only mean recruiting new doctors, additional doctors, not just taking someone from corner book and put them in Stephenville or vice versa or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, anyway. But, no, I mean, like for my doctor to be going to the hospital, she has now given up 500 patients. That's 500 patients out in the community now with no family doctor. Where do we all turn? And that's, I'm only one of three other people this month I've talked to that have lost their family doctors in the past month with little or no notice. And I'm after calling every place in the city I can think of to try to get a family doctor. And I can't do it. Uh, you're one of 100,000, unfortunately, for many of us. Uh, the last official family doctor I had was Dr. Len Sims. He had, a, had an office on Queens Road, and I think he's been dead this past 30 years. Uh, you know, and you have to wonder, sorry, Patty, you have to wonder, the millions of dollars coming in to ho come home here, why in the name of God are we not putting it in health care? We need that. It's screaming at us. We need that. And we can invite people down for what? To catch more COVID? Our, our, our numbers are through the roof. We're not even be, being told the truth on that. Yeah. So we're going to have a come home year with all these people in the hospital. People can't afford to come home for the crying out loud. And now we're all going without doctors again, but the government has all this money to spend. It just, it's mind-blowing what's going on. And I ask your public, call Patty. Let them know how many doctors have dropped in lately to go to the hospital because there's okay. something going on there. Appreciate the time, Wanda. Off to the news we go. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break for said newscast. When we come back, the CEO of Sequence Bio, that's a biotechnology uh, company, they are leading the NL Genome Project. We'll find out more about that when we speak with the CEO, Chris Gardner. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let us go. Line number one, say good morning to the CEO at Sequence Bio. That's our friend Chris Gardner. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the program. So happy to be here. 
So you're a biotech company. You're working on the NL Genome Project. Just an update. You were trying to get 10,000 volunteers to participate. Do you have the 10,000? We, uh, we are publishing uh, some new scientific papers that are being peer-reviewed right now that uh, has the results of some of our early research from that cohort you're referring to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, can't, I can't divulge it yet because it needs to go through the peer review process, but it's very exciting for our company, and uh, we'll be sure to talk about it when it comes out. Okay, so we'll leave it there. Goodbye. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Fooling around. Okay. <laughs> What is the NL Genome Project? Because for those in the know, in your field, they'll know exactly what you're working on, but just for the layperson, what are we what are we doing with this particular project? Well, this project was a pilot to help us understand the structure of the Newfoundland founder population and the unique founder effect that you can find here. And in lay terms, that just means Newfoundland, the island, is, is a very special place for trying to identify new novel drug targets. And so the pilot program you're referring to was our first step Uh, up to 10,000 participants, where we begin to study and research that so we could plan more research projects and work with more uh, international companies to hopefully contribute to the discovery of new and effective drugs. Why is it so unique here? Because I know we've made some really great strides in genetic research here, identifying a bunch of very unique genes and treatments for So what makes it unique? What makes it unique is the the settlement pattern that occurred here in the 1700s. As you know, we're a a lot of us uh, come from Ireland and England. Uh, this was a fishing colony, and about 25,000 people immigrated here in the 1700s. And since then, the population has remained very stable. And without getting deep into the science, the idea is we're able to kind of change the signal to noise ratio with looking at data. And so it makes it easier to find some of these subtle changes in a mass quantity of data here than you would if you took a random sampling from across the globe. And that's, that little change translates to a big difference. Uh, you know, it's trying to find a needle in a haystack, but with a lot more needles and a lot less hay. So it's easier to do here than anywhere else. Do you, uh, we'll get into how the project's going to unfold and how the information's going to be used, but do you use partners like Dr. Terry Young or Dr. Bridget Fernandez, you know, some of the work they've done with right ventricular atherogenic cardiomyopathy, which is a rare disorder identified by geneticists at Mon. Do you work with those types of partners? So there's a lot of academic research happening uh, in the province, which is fantastic. As a private company, we choose to work with uh, other physicians all across the land, and, and we do have some exciting partnerships uh, with some of these researchers that we're going to be announcing soon. How is the information going to be utilized in practical terms? Well, in practical terms, uh, when we are able to generate this information, and we're, and we're now combing it, right, so we're looking for that needle, uh, that's an oversimplification. These are supercomputers that we're using to analyze and find subtle variations. And if we're able to identify what we call as a target, that then helps determine investment into further scientific research into actually finding out, can we create compounds or drugs that can have an impact? So it really helps determine whether or not to pursue the, the really large investment uh, into the drug discovery process. It's the earliest, earliest stages of, of identifying these novel targets that can help dictate new drug development programs. So what would, really next cr- steps, what would next steps be in developing the drugs or just continuing the same type of work you are doing? Well, the drug development process can take well over a decade. Sure. People are terms clinical trials. Well, a lot has to happen before a clinical trial. Clinical trial is when you're actually testing a new drug in humans in different stages. But there is a lot of research and scientific development that happens on the front end. And so for us, 
if we identify a novel target, then the decision happens of whether or not to invest in that further scientific development, inching yourself closer to that clinical trial stage, and eventually, hopefully at the end of a decade and a multi-billions of dollars in investment, you might be able to bring a, a new drug or an improved drug to market that can improve the lives of those affected around the world. Talk with Dan Brake at uh, TechNL just yesterday and talking about you can indeed make it happen right here. You don't need to be in Silicon Valley any longer to be a big and uh, growing and prosperous tech firm. I don't want to bring up any painful memories, but you face some challenges, we'll call them here in this province, but you're doing very unique work. What is it like to do business in this province? There are some unique challenges to doing work here. Talent used to be a much bigger issue. Uh, and then with the pandemic, and the ability where everybody sort of went remote, we find that the talent market has shifted. And so now we're able to have a collection of these global experts working hand-in-hand with you know, local leaders and local talent to create even better companies. So although there historically has been challenges to be on an island in the middle of North Atlantic starting a company like ours, now, now we can use the, our remoteness and our experience with that to actually be an advantage. And when looking for talent, you've got to have the right type of atmosphere and opportunity presence. So I want to congratulate you on the work you're doing and for being recognized as one of Canada's top small and medium employers for 2022. What do you do at Sequence Bio that makes you one of these top uh, small to medium employers? Because it's one thing to recruit talent, another to keep it. Yeah, we're really honored to be recognized with that award and to be able to build uh, a top uh, company here on the island. And so some of the things we do is... uh, Around the country, uh, women only make up about 20, 23% of uh, employees in these science companies and technology companies. So we put a lot of effort into diversity, uh, specifically gender diversity. And at Sequence Bio, we have 54% uh, participation in our workforce that is female. And that's just one example of the progressive policies we've put in place. We see the numbers of men versus women in advanced degrees, pursuing advanced degrees, and in- including inside of STEM. So. Is it changing the way I think it is? Because I heard some numbers that came from the United States that indicated that. I wonder, is it the same in Canada, to your knowledge? Well, definitely. The, uh, and I, I think we're going to be the multifaceted problem. I think education is just one, one element. But there is a higher participation in post-secondary degrees by women. And, again, we actively look to hire and promote uh, women within our company. Uh, congratulations once again on the work you're doing. It's fascinating stuff, albeit most of it much well over my head, but on the recognition as one of the top small and medium employers, that's something to be quite proud of. Good to speak with you, Chris. Thanks for your time. Always a great time. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Chris Gardner. He's the CEO at Sequence Bio. Let's get another one before the break, and we'll go to line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, line number two, caller. You're on the air. Hello? Yes, hello. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is Mr. Stokon. I was uh, wondering about uh, like the COVID uh, vaccines and, uh, and the COVID that was going on right now, uh, about the travel and stuff like that. I was uh, like, for regards to driving from, uh, like, if you go from Newfoundland to Toronto, you can drive, but you can't fly without the vaccine. So I was wondering if that was going to change or because they said they haven't come home here. And, like, I got people, people that's coming home from Toronto and that, but uh, the ones that's not vaccinated, they can't uh, fly, but uh, they can drive. So I was wondering, because uh, you can go to bars and everything else, I was wondering if, uh, like, how do they make the decision uh, or if it's going to be done by the time, probably, like, July, June or July. 
Well, of course, that would be a federal issue. There's no controls here in this province on that front. Um, I would imagine there is going to be because there's a sunset clause uh, associated with these requirements and vaccine mandates. You know, as I've said many times, I think it's time that we legitimately talk about this because people who want to be vaccinated are folks who won't and will not and never will. They're not going to do it. So now we've arrived at a place where it's more punishment than it is public health. So government policy has to have an intended goal, intended outcomes and way to measure it. We are where we are. The vaccination numbers are not going to change, you know, unless some small numbers feel so punished whether it be for jobs or travel that they'll just eventually do it but that's kind of beside the point here we're at a place now where i think there's an honest conversation required to mm-hmm. talk about whether or not the mandate is necessary at this time you know what about like you still got the regular uh, influenza out, out there you still got a regular flu out there so uh, like they're not uh, like uh, you don't hear about anybody having a regular flu anymore you don't hear anybody here but still of anybody, but they also dropped all these vaccines right now, and they dropped all these masks right now. You can you can go into bars right now, you can go play darts right now, you can go to movies right now. But so, what's the difference of going to a bar, or what's the difference of going to a, a, a movie? Like, and, and associate with all these people that's not vaccinated or vaccinated, but like you can't get on a plane for three hours and drive to Newfoundland, you know, or fly to Newfoundland. Yeah, I'm. I think they're different things, but uh, fair enough. The restrictions will see, the time will tell the tale, and the old two-week lag between restrictions going uh, going away and then whatever we'll see with case load numbers and hospitalizations and all the rest of it. But I do think, uh, even for folks who are, you know, still hoping that more and more people get vaccinated, that's up to them. I mean, people will do what they want to do for their own individual health decisions. But if we are where we are with the numbers, I think there requires uh, a federal discussion about the mandate because they have all the controls there. You know, yeah, the I airline think, industry is uh, a federally regulated. I think it was you last week. That was one lady that was here in Newfoundland, and she couldn't fly. Uh, like her mother was sick in Toronto, and she had to drive all the way through all the weather. And I, uh, I was listening to last week on uh, VOCM that she had to drive all the way from uh, Newfoundland to Toronto to see her mother before she passed away. Unfortunately, uh, I know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do think there's going to be more conversation on that front, and I think necessarily so. I uh, appreciate you making time for the show. Uh, so i got one more thing. Okay. Uh, I heard yesterday on the news and stuff, too, about the uh, fish plants here in Newfoundland and that. They brought in some uh, new uh, people for to start work today in the fish plants uh, from uh, China. They're from the Philippines. And they're saying, um, like, I heard that oh, they haven't got new, enough Newfoundlanders down here to work in the fish plant. Like, I think that's a bit ridiculous. I think they got enough people down there to work at a fish plant. And like, when I heard that yesterday, like, and Buddy was like uh, on the news there, uh, CBS News. They proved to say that there's not enough people down here in Newfoundland that want to work at a fish plant, and you got to bring people in. Like, I think that was a bit of ridiculous for him to say that. But it's actually true. Oh, it's actually true. Absolutely, there's a labor. I don't No, no, no. I don't think that's true. I think people down here in Newfoundland, A, if they got the opportunity to work the plants first, you wouldn't have to bring people in. I, I think there's enough people down here in Newfoundland that's ain't got work and would love to would love to go to work in uh, at the opportunities and stuff first to get their jobs. Like, but why wouldn't you know, they the take the job? Everything that went on was on the go and everything was locked shut. People shut down. A lot of people weren't hiring. A lot of people are not hiring. I know people that are down here that sit at home. That they don't want to go away. They would, they would love to work down here, 
So, like, for him to say, turn around and say that, hey, there's jobs done, I know there's jobs done here. And I'm not uh, disgracing any immigrants coming in, pardon me, if I do Canadians coming or anybody else bringing in to go to work. But as I know there's people that are down here that, that will uh, gradually work, like, will go to work and do work down here. And uh, for him to say that, hey, there's newfies down here that won't go to work. That's a little bit ridiculous. I know someone in the processing business, they could not get enough local people to work in the plant, period, as much as they tried. Now, it might be associated with, you know, not very many weeks of work being offered or the rate of pay or how healthy and safe it might be. But I know a guy, and he was quite clear, we have done what we can to try to fill up the roster, and they cannot do it. So, And this is, this is not the first year either. No. No, this has happened several times over the last few years. Uh, you know, like I said, there's a lot of people down there in Newfoundland that ain't got work too. And uh, like I said, they, uh, you know, for the for the for him to turn around and say that like he got like there's people down there in Newfoundland that won't work, I think that's a little bit uh, far fetched. Right? But it's un- but it's actually unfortunately true. There's people that might not even want to do away with their employment insurance to go ahead and take a few weeks worth of work. So <laughs> this happens. Oh come on, Patty! Like years ago, the people down there—that's all we had. Like we had grants, like doing it outside of uh, outside of brooks and in in the woods and stuff like that. Like you had the people in the woods and then cut stuff outside of grants, outside of roads, and like they put people to work just for like grants for forty, just not to get you out of plowing stuff. Exactly, exactly. Right? Make work projects. Yeah, make work projects. They had, they had that like years ago, but I, I don't even see, I don't even see that no no more down there. Like no more. You don't even see them those down there no more. Like and there's a lot of ponds and stuff down there, stuff that really needs to be done. A lot of roads that need to be done. I don't see no. Uh, I don't see any the government down there doing anything for to give all of our young ones any opportunities to do that anymore. But road building, you know, repairing roads can't be make work project. Yeah, I know, but still, there's other jobs like uh, like even like there's no more grants down there no more or something anything for to give all of uh, all of us newbies down there and that opportunities to to uh, get the uh, stamps and everything else anymore. Like no more offers. Like uh, you can't find them those offers anymore. Like you used to. Yeah, the the whole world of uh, working just to get stamps, creating projects just for, so people can get their stamps, it hasn't worked. We what we ended up doing was have a bunch of people in different communities simply relying on whether it be the stamp fishery and or just make work simply to have a cyclical nature of unemployment make work project unemployment make work project. We kind of we kind of dropped the ball on that front a little bit. That hasn't been in the long term benefit of anybody. So I think that's some of the rationale why well it went away. My grandfather down in the cove managed a couple of make work projects when I was a child. You know, for one, they put up a fence around the graveyard to replace the fence that was already there, but they put up another fence. You know, it, some of those things were just for exactly what the phrase says, make work. Yeah. Busy oh, yeah. work. But on the still, there's like, a, lot of, a lot of places that, like road work and stuff like that and a lot of cleanups and stuff like that. that like, you know, it's, it could be like if the government turn around and get in, invested in stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, give, like, a lot of kids and stuff, uh, offers and that and, and, and make jobs like that for, for the summer and stuff coming up. It'll, it'll, it'll get a lot of people out and get them involved and, and get them yeah. back in the working area just, just instead of sitting at home doing nothing, right? Yeah, sitting at home doing nothing is never a good thing, is it? I appreciate no. the time. Time for the break. Stay in touch. All right. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Linda, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well. Thanks. How about you? Great. Um, today, uh, we just want to uh, extend our family's congratulations to 
our niece, uh, Renee Birmingham, uh, her maiden name is Petty Harper. She's retiring after 33 years um, with the Canadian Navy. That's putting a pretty good shift in, 33 years. I'm telling you it is, and uh, she's been um, well ranked up there. She's a chief now, and... um, her son has joined. Uh, she's been a wonderful role model for all the family. She actually, she was just short a little bit of her 20th birthday when she uh, enrolled in the Navy. And she's been on all the um, the major ships, I think it's the five of them, actually the Protector, the Preserver, Toronto, Montreal, and the Iroquois. She's been stationed in Halifax, Norfolk, Virginia. She was over in the Gulf War. She's after doing it all, and we're so very, very proud of her. She's uh, her uh, retirement. Um, she's retiring with uh, dignity, it's called, and from boarding today. And her mom is there, and a uh, couple of her cousins, and her son. He's in the Air Force. So all of us, her family, the Birminghams and the Chapes from Petty Harbour, and uh, all our friends, her lifelong friends, are all wishing her the very best. We're all very. Um, emotional and so very proud of our Renee. And so you should be. Can you think back to when she first enrolled? Like, did the family have a history of service in the military or did she do it for her own personal wants to serve? Can you remember that far back as to well, wh- what her, motivated her? Her grandfather Chafe was uh, served in the Second World War and he was awarded the military medal so I mean he was always uh, up on a pedestal with all the family as he should be besides being um uh, served in the Second World War. He was just a uh, top-notch dad and father and grandfather. Couldn't say enough about him. So Renee um, kind of followed in his footsteps and um, went down to do great things herself. Uh, good on her. What's her plans for her retirement? Actually, she's uh, well, she's stationed in Borden. Her husband, right now, she was stationed there for the past couple of years, but her husband, they have their home there in Halifax because she's... Uh, He's retired from the military as well. And she's going to work for the commissioners. Good for her. Well, you know, nothing but respect but for she's those. She's only young, you know. I mean, oh, yeah. 53, or not quite 53, or 52, she'll have a feet. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a little bit young still to just be out and about with. And she's such a busy person. Yeah, well, uh, respect for her service and uh, congratulations on her retirement. We wish her nothing but the, the very best of health and happiness in her retirement years with her husband and her family out in Halifax. All right, I'm going to send off that little message to her uh, her major next. I got her email there, and I'm sure it'll be read out today at her ceremony. Yes, and wish her the very best for me personally. Please, Linda. I certainly will, Patty. God bless you. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Stay in touch. Okay, love. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's lovely. They're obviously quite proud of the chief. Okay, uh, let's take a break for the newscast. But when we come back, we still have time to speak with you. You can bring up any topic that you so desire after this. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning to oil and gas consultant Rob Strong. Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today, thanks. How about you? Good, thank you. Patty, I was just wondering whether I should get dressed up and go up to the House of Assembly for uh, ministerial statements. 
I was just wondering if uh, your sources are saying that the Beta Nord project is going to get announced and whether or not the minister will do it via a ministerial statement. What do you think? I don't know. Now, the couple of rumbles, one person that I know was in Ottawa and says there's talk of an announcement today. He didn't say whether or not it was a green light or a red light, but he said he's hearing that there might be something afoot for late this afternoon. Now, I consequently heard from someone else here that they heard the same thing. That might be from the same source. So I don't really know. If it's today, it sounds like green light. If it's another day after this, I think we're back to the 50-50 or 51-49. Well, I've heard both today, but I've also heard on Friday. Uh, because, of course, there'll be lots of post, uh, post-budget post coverage. And in order to, to sort of bury the story a little bit, Friday would be a good time to do it because you guys in the media, of course, will be very busy, certainly in the national media, analyzing the budget. But I definitely think it's going to happen, and I guess one of the reasons I think that is the I've been tracking the progress of the of the transit of the uh, West Hercules. She, as you may know, was sitting in a fjord in Norway up to about a week ago, and all of a sudden she went under she went underway and accompanied by the Atlantic Kestrel, which is one of the Atlantic towing vessels. And the last time I tracked it, it was um, west of the Shetlands, west, actually west of Ireland. I can't seem to get any more information on her. She's out of range. But, you know, if you're going to move a rig from, uh, from Doorway to Newfoundland, you're not going to bring it over here just to stack it. So it's a pretty good sign that, the, that it's going to happen. She's got a contract with Equinor for $95 million for two wells. So... Uh, I think it's just a matter of time. I'm just curious as to when you think it was versus when I think it is. Well, I mean, just from where I sit, uh, if the rumbles are right, then if it's today, I think it can't be anything but an approval. If it's late Friday afternoon, I think we're back to that bad news late Friday dump, possibly. Because, I mean... It does have a big implication on the political front. And the, politi- the political calculation, unfortunately for us, is not necessarily in our favor because it wouldn't be about our seven seats. It would be about the liberals who are pushing back in caucus that are representing ridings in Ontario, Quebec, and in British Columbia. So, you know, every time I turn my head, and I, I, like I said off the top of the show, maybe I spend too much time rolling around in bed thinking about the issues of the day. But the Greenhouse Gas Emissions Report led me to read between the lines and think, well, that does sound good for Beta North. Then with all of the delays and the rebranding of Energy NL and the Canadian uh, Newfoundland Petroleum Board, now the Energy Board, I don't know what to think anymore, Rob, to be honest with you. Well, I got myself talking to a spiral. As I say, if, if, if Equinor didn't think it was going to happen or if Equinor knew it wasn't going to happen, why would they mobilize a rig at sure. $200,000 a day, roughly, to come across the Atlantic? So I... I, I I, I, I hear you vis-a-vis the opposition, uh, and there's lots of it out there, particularly in light of the United Nations comments yesterday, but also I did listen to the Prime Minister and the Minister of Environment and the Minister of Natural Resources last Monday from uh, from Vancouver, and I didn't detect a negativity, a negative feeling on that. So uh, I'm saying she's a done deal, and I'm saying she's going to be announced on Friday. 
Minister Wilkinson was even forced to justify any comments about increased oil production in the short term. So, you know, the only increase in production, there's only a couple of applications for production on the table, as far as I understand, in the entire country at this moment in time. So, I don't know, man. Yeah, we're talking 300,000 barrels. Uh, additional production of which we hope 200,000 barrels of that would come out of out of western Canada and 100,000 barrels a day or so would come out of eastern Canada so that's the that's the way I read it anyway yeah for those of you out there talking about carbon intensity just one more time if we're <laughs> going to produce anything the international average is about 17 kilograms per barrel this province 14.9 per barrel the Equinor plans for Beta Nord and the mitigation they have in place would be eight kilograms per barrel so if anybody's talking about low carbon intensity you're not going to get lower than that and western canada 69 yep. kilograms per barrel as high as 77 yeah we yeah. got it there okay go. let's keep your fingers crossed thanks rob appreciate your time okay bet. all right bye-bye bye-bye all right let's go to line number two good morning Anne. you're on the air good morning welcome to the show thank you what's on your mind this morning Oh, sorry. I'm calling about uh, the Lower Rennies River Trail. There is a large willow tree down there that is an absolute treasure. It's been around for more than 50 years. And I think, I'm not entirely sure, that the, um, the city is cutting it down this morning. When I went by on Elizabeth on Empire Avenue, I saw the um, arborists there. Uh, I'm very familiar with the trail. That's my neck of the woods. So which willow in particular? Give me a mind's eye so where I can try to picture what tree we're talking okay. about. Okay, it's between Portugal Cove Road and Kingsbridge Road below the tennis club, and it's on the, the river side of the trail. And there used to be a viewing platform there, and there's now just a, a railing, a wooden railing there. Uh, so I know where that is, just beyond Riverdale. Just build on Riverdale Tennis Club, that's right. So given the size of the tree, the age of the tree, the beauty or majesty of the tree, is it an overhang issue? Would you suggest that they're tr- going to deal with cutting down such a beautiful tree? What's going there on? There's a trunk of the tree that um, I guess it juts into the trail and you've got to sort of do a chicane around it. But um, people have managed that ever since the trail has been there with no issues at all. And I have no idea why they're going to cut it down. They're talking about the flooding on the Rennies River Trail. And one of the things that mitigates flooding is trees. Sure. So I'm very cross. It's a really good um, location for rare birds because I'm a bird watcher as well. And the um, right now there have been three rare birds that are going to that willow tree. We take for granted the incredible trail network in the city, don't we? We certainly, well, I don't, because <laughs> I, I use it every day, and the Grand Concourse Authority does a fantastic job. I wonder what yeah. the big debate regarding um, folks with disabilities and with uh, baby carriages and the like, when you have to do a chicane, as you refer to a nice Formula One reference, when you have some of these issues that have been debated, and, you know, even paving over some of the parts of the Grand Concourse, I wonder, does that play a role? Um, I think people with uh, push chairs don't have an issue, and um, maybe people in wheelchairs do. But the trail, I think, is is wide enough for a wheelchair. Now, I I would not presume to speak for the people in wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. No, no, nor would I. No. I appreciate your time, Anne. I didn't know this was happening today, but I'll follow up with the city to see what exactly is going on. 
I've tried to get hold of somebody at the city without any luck. It's always a crapshoot, but I'm going to give it a try anyway. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, okay bye. Bye, Anne. Uh, let's see here. A quick check out on Twitter before we get to the break. We're a VOCM open line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. And as we know, on a unfortunate sad note, today's the anniversary of the Humboldt Broncos tragedy. And there is indeed a Newfoundland connection. The parents of goalie Parker Tobin. Uh, they have deep roots in Conception Bay North and Trinity Bay. They're commemorating the loss today, the fourth anniversary. We had a conversation with uh, Bernie and Toby Boulay on the program. I think Ben Murphy spoke with the family of uh, Parker Tobin on the VOCM Morning Show. So that's something that uh, hit us all hard in the commemorations and the memorials are happening today. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go line four. Leo, you're on the air. Good, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, I've, <laughs> I, I'm going to go back in time. Now, I was 14 years old when we went in Confederation. And I watched what happened over the years. And I wonder how in the name of God did we ever get in the position that we're in today with all the resources that we brought into this country. <clears throat> One example that I think is quite clear would be regarding the fishery. Everything else, I think we can own it ourselves. I don't know. You take, we'll go to the Labrador. You take how many billions of dollars in oil and ore has been taken out of it, out of the Labrador? How many billions of dollars have been taken out of Boise Bay? And we got Muskrat Falls, well, well, whatever, and we got we got Churchill Falls, and. Uh, but look, what about the minerals? Let's take them one by one. What about the minerals insofar as giveaways? Well, I mean, say, I'm just saying what we had, what the resources that we had. I don't know if it was given away or what, but I mean, say, we certainly didn't benefit from it. I mean, we had we had everything there in Labrador. We're just talking about Labrador for a minute. But you take we had iron ore and we had Visey Bay. We had the two uh, uh, the two uh, Churchill and, and Muskrat, plus one of the most lucrative histories in the world. And I suppose I don't know if they even got pavement all over Labrador uh, on roads in Labrador yet. And look at the billions of dollars that was taken out of it. But how did we not benefit from it? I mean, we've had some long-running, even though it's boom and bust kind of stuff. Patty, how can you say benefit when we're billions of dollars in the hole? That's a matter of spending. Here We had, had on the island here, we had at one time three paper mills here. We had two of the largest paper mills in the world. And uh, and plus, uh, uh, you know, our our hydro and everything, and we just ended up, I mean, say, we haven't even got, people are complaining now because we haven't got a decent road to drive on. We're only 500,000 people the size of a small city, and with the resources that we had, plus the $30 million that we brought into it, and $30 million back then was a lot of money compared to today. And what we brought in and where we're to today, it's unreal. It's unbelievable that we could end up in the mess that we're in right now. That's our own fault, for the most part. It's, it's you know, the fishery fault, is, 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 is a different issue. And we don't have a scarcity of money. We have a problem with distribution. That's long been the case. You know, someone is willing to tell me that we've squandered every billion dollars worth of oil royalty when that's not really true. Did we utilize it the proper way? Did we foresee the future and try to make sure that we didn't have a firm year-over-year reliance on it? No. So some of the decisions have been made have been highly questionable, obviously. But, you know, I think far too many people are willing to blame Canada. 
Uh, now, on the fishery, that's a, a completely separate issue. But for the rest of it, we've kind of been the masters of our own fate and domain, and we've made some bad decisions, and consequently, look where we are. Yes, and look where we're going to be. Because talking about uh, talking about offshore, well, you take Baden Lord, for instance. I mean, say, what's the good of Baden Lord to us? I mean, say, Baden Lord could be developed, but if Baden Lord is developed, and we're bringing in billions of dollars, we'll come up with Joey Smallwood or Frank Moores or or Danny Williams, and uh, bingo, it's gone. You'll come up with some hair brain scheme uh, compared to, say, to uh, Muskrat Falls, and all of a sudden, Baden-Nord means nothing to us because it's gone to hell, and God, uh, God only knows where. I mean, so you take like what they're doing here now with this 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 inquiry that they've done on what where they're going to sell off of the, the the liquor control and all that stuff, and giving these three million dollars or five million dollars to these people. It's unbelievable. I mean, say, how do people put up with it? You know? So you're just presupposing that if Baden-Nord is a Proved it will be what a bad thing financially. It'll be gone. It'll be gone. And you can bring in all the money you like, and it'll go and just the same as the rest of it went. And we're billions of dollars in the hole, and bingo. Well, I don't know. I think billions coming in is better than zero coming in. Hmm. I think billions coming in is better than nothing. Well, oh, yeah, sure, because somebody's benefit from, from for sure. Because you take, as we speak right now, I mean, say there's $2 million that three people owe $2 million decades ago, and, and, and they're still walking around free. Uh, what are you talking about there? I'm talking about that uh, that uh, the fellow that uh, come up with the cufflinks and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the uh, cufflinks and the... The toy clips and stuff. Yeah, the constituency <laughs> made, allowance over. I made, that's, I made that's a million dollars out of it, plus the other fellows, the other two fellows, that that owe a million dollars. People went to jail. Politicians went to jail. <laughs> yes, but not the fellows, not the fellows I'm talking about. Yeah, but the fellows that actually uh, got lucrative contracts with the government, that's the government's fault. That's the politicians' fault, not the company's fault, is it? It's not. I said, uh, well, when you say the government's fault, I wonder... Or the politicians. Well, where we've been led by the government is the people, you know, and certainly I'm the people. And now I know I'm not I'm not very educated or anything like that, but I am the people. And certainly, Christ, I'm not to turn around and giving uh, somebody three five million dollars doing inquiry on something that you know, or or I'm not going to develop say a place up there to say uh, uh, you know some foolish scheme. <laughs> but I mean, say somebody like we're easy led, we're led around by the nose. And I'm going to tell you something, and I believe this to be the truth: that what we've seen going on in Ottawa last winter is not the end of it, because just the people are being tired of being pushed around. Yeah, some of that oh, was based in my on time. Some Dan, in my time, Patty. I mean, say I seen the day that if I wanted to go out and catch a fish. I could go and catch it. If I wanted to catch a salmon, I could put out a net. If I wanted to put out lobster pot catch lobster, I could do so. If I wanted to go in the woods and cut a log, I could do so. All that is taken away from me. All that is taken away from me. But still and for all today, somebody, say the Sullivans or the Berries or somebody else can drop a net and take a 100 ton of water, and I can't even put a hook down and take one. So, I mean, say, that's me. And, I mean, every uh, people, uh, people are starting to think, you know, where did our rights go? One time, we had a mile, what they call fishermen's claim, a mile from the salt water. We could go and cut wood. That's gone. That's all gone. 
but still and for all, the companies, the paper company, can cut hundreds and thousands of cords, and I can't. I got to go on and beg them to get four or five or six or seven cord of wood to put out in a in a in a, in a, in a fire, uh, light light stove. I appreciate the concerns and the time, Leo. Okay, Mr. Owen. All the best. Take it easy. All right, bye bye. Uh, final word goes to line number one. William, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hello, Patty. Yes, sir. Uh, first time caller, boy. I'm not very really good on the phone. Uh, you were talking to that fellow there about getting his uh, report for what the doctor sent up Mottawell, Mount Toronto. Yeah, that's right. He's medical records. That's yeah, right. I, I had a letter, too, when I had a form to fill out in January, and I called them. I met, they told me to put in a check. I put the check in and sent it off. I haven't heard a sound since. How long ago was that? Uh, January. Shouldn't they? T- uh, shouldn't take that long to turn it around? No, no. They said it take four to five weeks. Well, it's been a lot longer than that. So, anyway. Yeah, I never heard a sound from them, and they gave me a rate at the time, and they told me to make out a check for $86.27. And so you have obviously followed up with the company to ask them what's going on. Yeah, I got the phone number here. Have you called him? Yeah, he's just the same company. He's just the same doctor, the buddy had his name, you know. It, it, they were called, um, it's spelled D O C U D A B I T Solutions. Yeah, Dr. David Solutions. That's the same company he was talking yeah, about. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I guess he had the same doctor as me. Uh, the phone number is 1 781 9083. And they got a fax number there, too. When we hang up, you dial that number and see what's going on. I'm going to do, yeah. Because I got the the girl what, name here, too, what, what told me to send the check. Let me know what happens, William. Pardon? Let me know what happens when you give him a shout. I will. Okay, appreciate this. Good luck. Yeah, I, I won't get over to you today, probably more. Uh, best kind. Just let, give us a call, speak with Dave, let me know what happened. Okay, then. Okay, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, you want to play a little Free Man in Paris on the way out of here, David? Or All right, so good show today. Appreciate the support the program gets, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.